councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. Friday and welcome to another edition of The Straight Dope and I'm your host Damon Dare. Thank you so much for joining me this Friday. I just want to apologize folks. I know it's been a while. It's been since April since we turned out another episode. Life's been busy. It's been a great summer and I hope it has been for you too. But um, seriously and all, all, all kidding and joking aside, um, it has been a while. Our deepest apologies. We're going to try to uh, get back on the horse and be a little bit more regular. But anyway, right here at uh, The Straight Dope, um, I just want to say tonight uh, we have uh, a very special episode, uh, certainly concerning a topic that's very fresh in the media and in discussions these days. Uh, the topic is UFOs, unidentified flying objects, or as rebranded by the U.S. military, UAPs, unidentified aerial phenomena. So both terms are one and the same. One of the things I want to bring to your attention, as you heard in the soundbite at the beginning of the show, and you've heard this, you know, it's a soundbite that we create, that we mixed up, you know, for other shows. It's, you, you hear that clip, if you go back and listen, if you haven't already heard it, or maybe you skipped it or whatever, but if you go back and listen to President Eisenhower's uh, warning to the American people on his farewell address, um, he warned us about the military-industrial complex. And folks, I've got to tell you, it's the military-industrial complex that really is running the show when it comes to items concerning UFOs, extraterrestrials, their technology, and recovered biologics from crash sites. Um, they are the gatekeepers, folks, and that's exactly what... Eisenhower was warning us about is that, you know, the American people have a right to know about what is going on in our skies, what is happening to our people where, you know, we have sev several, you know, cases of abduction and the time, the time is ripe, you know, and then some for full disclosure to happen. 
And it's something that I think is starting to happen where now we actually have the topic legitimized, where now we have Congress actually requesting access to classified materials concerning these phenomena that are occurring in our skies, in our homes, and in our towns, you know, across the country. In fact, more recently, you may have seen already, um, you know, over the summer, uh, when they had a uh, congressional hearing on the subject, there were three key witnesses that are former retired military. You know, we heard from Ryan Graves, the executive director of Americans for Safe Aerospace. We heard from retired Air Force Major General Grush, and we also heard from retired Navy Commander David Fravor. Those three highly respected people have come forward now in front of Congress today to actually talk about this phenomena, what, what they're seeing, the evidence. I mean, these are, these are decorated people that have come forward to talk about this, you know, and I have to say, ladies and gentlemen, the stigma that is around, that centers around the whole UFO phenomena, it needs to stop. This is a topic that really deserves serious academic and, you know, scientific review by the greater scientific community and academic community. It has for a long time not gotten the real critical attention that it deserves. Why? Because of the stigma. Everyone is afraid that if they touch this topic, their careers are going to be sent down the drain. And, you know, it shouldn't be that way. I mean, science, right? Science is exactly the kind of thing it's about wanting to know more wanting to know the truth right so why is it that we can't let the scientists and the academics do their job why is it that you know they are why is it that we have to keep propelling the stigma not allowing these people to actually thoroughly investigate this and actually, you know, look at the hard data and the evidence that's been coming forward for years and decades. You know, that, that is something that's long overdue. You know, it, it's time now to, it, you know, talking about UFOs doesn't make one crazy, right? Hell, even if you see a UFO or something you can't explain, right? That doesn't make you crazy to talk about it. And you shouldn't fear talking about it. But anyone who sees anything like this obviously needs to come forward with hard data about their observations, what they saw, and actually get it to the right people and involve the right people. That could be psychologists who, you know, essentially, you know, first declare that the person was of sound mind and judgment when they made, when they made these observations, right? And then, of course, then making the next step to involving academics and scientists to review the citing data and the case recap. So, you know, another, I, I got to say, you know, there's only really been one major academic who's actually taken the plunge, you know, to go into this. And unfortunately, you know, this gentleman, you know, he's a former Harvard professor. You may have heard about him. His name is John E. Mack. John E. Mack was a well-tenured and respected 
scientist in the field of, of psychology. Um, he was in the, uh, you know, the school of, uh, Harvard School of Medicine um, and later became the head of psychiatry. He's published over 150 scientific articles and 11 books within his career. And, you know, since 1972, has been a tenured professor at Harvard and later from 1977 became the head of the psychiatry, you know, the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Um, so we're talking about somebody who's really high powered, really well respected and has, you know, chosen to dive into and investigate and explore and review all the available evidence and working with several people. Um, one of the things that, you know, Mr. You know, Professor Mack did in his tenure was he invested the aerial school case by carefully interviewing several of the students under careful scientific controls. And for folks, for those of you who aren't familiar with the aerial school case, you can Google that, you know, just Google aerial school, Zimbabwe, UFO incident. There's a lot of data about this. This was a mass sighting that occurred where uh, several of the students at the school actually saw not only a craft land, but they saw an extraterrestrial biological entity out in the open, and there was open communication between several of the students and the uh, extraterrestrial biological entity. So after that all occurred, um, later on, Professor Mack had met up with and investigated and interviewed several of the students from the school and determined that, you know, there was overwhelming, overwhelming evidence to support that all the accounts were not only authentic provided by multiple students, but they were all similar, you know, and, and it's not like he investigated or, or, you know, interviewed them in a group setting. I mean, he carefully applied scientific controls to talking with them one-on-one -on -one and separately and trying to validate, you know, a lot of the, um, a lot of the facts that came forward from many of these students. And he overwhelmingly saw that uh, there was definitely something there and it could not be ignored. It, it, it had merit as far as validity goes. Um, in all of, you know, Professor Mack's dealings with looking into these cases, um, eventually it caught the attention of the dean of Harvard Medical School. And the dean of Harvard Medical School opened up um, an investigation, uh, basically an investigative committee to investigate uh, Professor Mack's um, latest involvements with many of these people and whether or not, um, you know, he was actually, you know, practicing his craft, uh, you know, faithfully and scientifically, um, because there were many, there were, there were a few, uh, you know, as well as this Dean who felt that he was doing these folks a disservice Right. And, you know, when you look at the facts, it came out eventually that this the investigation by this committee that by this committee was closed and they, you know, they allowed him to continue being a tenured professor with all the rights and privileges there, too. Um, so he didn't lose his job. Um, and it's it's just uh, 
It is, it is one thing that's remarkable because it was the first time in Harvard's history that a tenure professor was subjected to such an investigation. It was that controversial, folks. Again, this, this is basically part of, you know, a result of the stigma surrounding, you know, the whole topic of UFOs and why our academics and our scientists are afraid to study this because they're afraid of losing their careers everything they've worked hard for. It shouldn't be that way. Science is about finding the answers. Science is about applying, you know, applying true and tried methods to try to find truth. And, you know, folks, if we can't let our scientists do that, we're, we're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot and we're never going to get the truth. So if we want to get the truth, we need to let the scientists and, you know, the academics do their job. You know, we shouldn't be, you know, um, chastising them for, you know, for, for trying to get to the bottom of truth. And I'll even point out that Professor Harvard, you know, Professor, um, Professor Mack was actually a skeptic on this whole thing when he first endeavored to embark on this journey and, and, and come to the bottom of this and, and investigate this. He, he was a big skeptic, but again, through applying scientific principles in his study and in his review of the available evidence and people, you know, he, he went from a skeptic to a believer. I mean, I think that much is well known. Unfortunately, you know, come, you know, September 27th in 2004, he was giving a, a lecture at the T.E. Lawrence Society. Um, it was a sponsored conference um, in London. And that night, uh, apparently after the conference, um, Professor Mack was killed um, on that day, on that evening, uh, by a drunk driver. Coincidence, or could it have been a hit? That's what I always wonder. I mean, you know, I think I think there's uh, speculation that you know maybe somebody could have paid someone to be drunk and try to hit him, you know, uh, because he was doing very controversial stuff, you know, by studying this stuff and and plunging into areas where no one would ever dare to go. And you know, I have to wonder if Professor Mack was knocked off, um, you know, for his choice to study something that was not only highly controversial, but something that was just a big taboo um, to even be discussing, you know, for anyone that was, you know, essentially well tenured and, well, I don't want to say decorated, but in this case, you know, he was, he was well respected. And, you know, it certainly, Harvard was very unhappy about you know, the potential for severe tarnishing of the school's reputation by him studying these things. So, I mean, I don't know, I suppose that will never be proven. And I suppose that, you know, it's something that, you know, we'll never know. But, you know, that's how it is. Um, anyway, we're going to take a quick break um, because we have a lot more to cover. We're going to talk about, you know, the Roswell crash of 1947. Uh, we're going to talk about you know, essentially the inception and creation of a group called Majestic 12. What is Majestic 12, right? We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about abductions. Why do they happen? What is the purpose? You know, do, you know, we don't really know, but I mean, there's a couple of good guesses based on the data, based on the discussions within some of the experiencers that are experiencing abductions. So we have some theories, you know, at least some decent, probable working theories about why abductions happen. So we'll take a little break 
We'll be right back. You're listening to The Straight Dope. Okay, and welcome back uh, from the break. And I'm your host, Damon Dare. And now we've been talking about, you know, Professor John Mack of Harvard University. You know, we talked about the folks, uh, retired uh, military folks that have come forward in front of Congress to discuss the issue and the need for Congress to get more transparency from the government and, you know, the military about these various phenomena, you know, and this, folks, this is just the beginning of, you know, what we consider to be, you know, uh, the beginnings of disclosure, like real disclosure. And, you know, I'm totally in support of, you know, the, the Congress getting more access to information, even some of the classified information, certainly not anything that, you know, could be um, directly impacting national security, but you know, there's a, there's gotta be a balance there where Congress, I mean, they, they write the checkbook, right? So, I mean, you know, as far as, um, 
you know, we, ha- we have to be able to trust our elected officials to be able to handle this information and to be able to triage it, you know, as necessary. So now what I'm going to talk about is, you know, the Roswell crash of 1947, you know, in it, many of you may already know about that crash. Some of you may not. However, you know, if, if you if you look about if you look at on the Internet about, you know, much of the historical information supposedly about the Roswell 1947 incident, you'll find that not only, you know, uh, craft were recovered, but also biologics. And folks, when we talk about biologics, we're talking about actual bodies. Right. So, you know, what are the what are the implications of this? Right. You know, so obviously the fact that, you know, if there's recovered biologics, you know that you know, obviously we're not alone. That, 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 that fact becomes abundantly clear really fast. Also, you know, when it comes to technology in terms of, you know, reverse engineering, we know, you know, obviously that there is not only a military, but there's also, you know, an economic uh, disruption, you know, for any kind of reverse engineered technology uh, recovered from, you know, recovered craft. Um, one of the things that, you know, I want to say about, you know, craft recovery is, I mean, apparently, you know, it's been done really quick and really efficient, you know, almost to the point where when you look at when, you know, Majestic 12 was created, right? Majestic 12, by the way, was created just about around the same time as the Roswell 1947 crash. And Majestic 12 is composed of you know, essentially a secret committee of scientists, military leaders, and government officials. And, you know, many of these are heads of like the three-letter agencies and whatnot, like the NSA, the CIA, etc. You know, and, and they are a very tightly knit group of people who have, you know, access to much of the compartmentalized information surrounding many of these recoveries and many of these reports and you know especially recovered materials specifically recovered materials which was the whole reason for the inception of this group um it was you know formed in 1947 you know by an executive order by u.s president harry s truman to facilitate the recovery and investigation of alien spacecraft in this case isn't it just a mere coincidence that it was created in 1947, the same year of Roswell? Well, that's pretty, that's pretty interesting fact right there. So I would say even just the fact that, you know, Majestic 12, which is also known as MJ 12 or Magic 12 or just Magic, um, and that's Magic spelled with a J. Um, it's very interesting that, that this group was formed so close to the year of well, in the same year of the Roswell crash incident. And, you know, and the thing is, like, there's even a whole book that's written about, you know, MJ-12, you know, various documents and memos that were signed by, you know, the various, you know, leaders and, and whatnot. Um, this book was written by Ryan Wood. It's now out of print, but the title of the book is called Magic Eyes Only. It's a hardcover. It was released in 2005, but unfortunately right now is out of print. That book, I actually managed to get a copy at the tune of $175. That book still on, in the market, if you go look for it, you can find used copies that are still selling for over $500. 
it's insane. I mean, I consider myself lucky that I got a copy at $175. But the fact that, you know, this book is selling used in the market, very few copies left, by the way, because it's, it's out of circulation. It's, I mean, it's out of print. So therefore, you know, no new copies are being printed. So any copies out in circulation are commanding very high prices. And if you manage to get one new, folks, it's going to cost you dearly at the tune of either 700 or more. So be prepared to open your wallet if you endeavor to get a copy of that book. But I'll tell you, I have a copy. I have already started reading it. It has got some very interesting things. Um, you know, that might be something for a deep dive in a later show. So, you know, for right now, I will say if you can manage to get yourself a copy of Magic Eyes Only by Ryan S. Wood, um, you might be inclined to do that, especially if you don't mind paying the hefty price of admission. Um, there is one thing that's interesting, though. And has anyone seen, I have to ask, like, has anyone ever seen the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind? It was released in 1977. And it was directed by um, one Steven Spielberg, the same guy that, you know, actually, um, you know, did the movie E.T., um, Interesting that Spielberg does a lot of movies involving aliens, E.T. and whatnot. But one of the things that, that I'm going to say is um, supposedly not long after the Roswell crash of 1947, it is quite possible there's a rumor flying around that the government had a secret project for an exchange program. Right? Now, when I say an exchange program, we all know back from our days of school, like, you know, exchange students, you know, uh, from different countries, you know, going to school, you know, here and all that stuff. Um, an exchange program, as it pertains to extraterrestrials, was known as Project Serpo. And in, you can actually Google that. You can Google Project Serpo. There are some online references about it. And supposedly it was an exchange program where 11 people um, who were either former military, scientists, or whatever, you know, met specific qualifications to be able to, I guess, be invited to go back to uh, the home world of the um, extraterrestrials that were visiting um, during the whole Roswell uh, incident. And um, the, the ETs that were here um, during Roswell, they're known as the Eben, right? The Eben, that's E-B-E-N. The Eben, um, essentially, it's been, it's been suggested that they, had a di they, they opened up a dialogue with the government and the military and um, invited um, the military and the government to select people to do a, essentially like a foreign exchange program where um, we could send 11 humans uh, with them to their world where they would learn about their world and way of life and whatnot. Well, I, I don't have any proof that this actually occurred, but it is quite interesting that, you know, Steven, when you, when you watch Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind, it's very interesting that the plot is almost an exact replica of what, um, you know, what took place in arranging the whole uh, Project Serpo, um, you know, essentially foreign exchange uh, program between these two worlds. Um, when we talk about like abductions, right? And this is a case where like, you know, people are taken without permission or against their will, right? You know, they, there's evidence that, 
you know, these beings have been visiting us for over thousands of years. I mean, if you go back to like some of the earliest cave drawings and paintings, you'll see that there are often depictions of craft in the sky, sometimes multiple craft in the sky with what appear to be um, astronauts or some kind of, you know, uh, being, you know, descending from some of these craft. I mean, these things, you know, and these are legit drawings. They're not something that somebody just went in there and painted recently. I mean, some of the, you know, these drawings have been validated to be, um, you know, quite old. And, you know, there are many indications and, and evidence that to suggest that they've been visiting for thousands of years. Um, you know, and there's, and there's other evidence too. I mean, I could go on about just the evidence alone and it would probably exceed the amount of time, you know, we have here in this show. But one of the things I'd want to suggest is the genetic gap in human, in human evolution. Like, of course, you know, there's been discussion saying, hey, human beings evolved from monkeys. Well, you know, I mean, that's what, that's what as kids, that's what we learn in school, right? You know, we, we, we hear the teachers say, oh, yeah, you know, uh, you know, homo sapiens are, you know, eventually evolved from monkeys or apes or whatever. Okay. Well, as a, as, as a grade school student, how do you know any better to suggest otherwise? But, you know, real scientists, you know, have determined that there seems to be an evolutionary genetic gap in the evolution of homo sapiens. I mean, and that's something that has been discussed in scientific circles. There hasn't really been a good explanation as to, you know, all of a sudden the big gap from, you know, uh, primate DNA to uh, homo sapiens, you know, that, that there's some kind of jump uh, somewhere in the history of DNA for homo sapiens. Um, you know, so I have often suggested that, you know, yes, it's quite possible that homo sapiens are a uh, product of genetic engineering from an off-world species. Um, and the fact, you know, the thing is, supposedly, according to the government, there are 77 known civilizations that have been visiting the earth over thousands of years. So, you know, one of the things that, that I often, you know, have said in, you know, conversations on ham radio and all that other stuff is, uh, when we talk about UFOs, um, is, you know, isn't it interesting that we have so many different races of people around the world, you know, many of whom looked vastly different, you know, from others around, you know, uh, you know, from different places around the globe. I can't account for those differences. I'm not a geneticist, but, you know, I have to wonder, right? You know, it can't, these differences can't be brought about by simple evolutionary change alone. I mean, some of them are, you know, some of the differences and the physical differences of people around the world, you know, are, are quite, um, are quite different. Um, and so in many cases, some of the environmental factors that, you know, one would think would, um, would bring about these different, these physical differences, you know, don't add up. Um, and there's, you know, there's a lot of data to support that some of those environmental factors are incongruent with what would bring about specific, uh, changes in things like eye color or skin color or hair type and whatnot. I mean, it's, there's just so many different attributes of people all around the world that, you know, among different races, my theory has always been that, hey, there could be multiple races, off-world races that have been involved in the genetic evolution of, 
you know, people and that, you know, we are the, all the product of that. Um, you know, and, and it's something that has been suggested by other people too. I'm not the only one that shares that belief. Um, but one thing, you know, before we go, you know, because, uh, we're almost out of time. Um, one thing I want to ask you, right. Every time, every time we see a sci-fi movie, like for example, the day when the earth stood still, if you've seen that classic, well, you know, the typical Hollywood, you know, take over the world scenario, you know, you see a couple ships in the sky, they land on the white house lawn or they take over the world. They bring the space lasers and all that stuff. You know, I would, I would propose, right. That if you're going to take over a world, an entire civilization, right. Why would you go through all that trouble if you had advanced knowledge of genetics and you could just simply rewrite the DNA of the world, the people who inhabit the world that you want to take over? Why would you go through all the, the old school military trouble of trying to f take it by force? Why not start splicing in DNA right into the native population over many many years right even if it's a couple thousand years right where they where they splice their dna into ours and there's been evidence of that to support that that could be the reason for the whole abduction phenomenon right there is essentially you know it has been known by many experiencers that there is a hybridization program, you know, essentially a program that has lasted for a, a few thousand years where, you know, the taking of, you know, sperm and eggs have been used to create, you know, a hybrid offspring, right? And that oftentimes, you know, they, they go through several cycles and, and iterations of this, um, you know, of this hybridization until the hybrids start looking more and more like humans, right? But they still have some alien uh, traits to them as well. Um, it's quite possible, folks, that one way in which you can take over a planet is to slowly, over thousands of years, inject your DNA very slowly and carefully into the target world's population. So I would propose as a possible idea that the reason why there is a hybridization program is they are trying to integrate us into their society or they are trying to integrate themselves into our society. There's a whole lot of possible rational reasons why that would be the better choice than bringing you know, weapons of mass destruction and, you know, trying to take a world by force. Because if you're trying to take a world, why would you want to scar that world by destroying things, right? When you could just genetically manipulate the populace and slowly put your genetic footprint into the, you know, the, uh, the population that lives on that planet. So I would suggest that that is possibly one of the goals. Now, I could be wrong. But there's been at least several dozen, you know, reasons for suggested for why these abductions take place. Um, some some of the abductions have been positive contacts, meaning that it's been a mutually agreeable and, and you know, positive experience. And then there are experienced experiencers that say that, you know, there's been physical harm or or they've been injured or or that, you know, there seem to be a, a more malevolent uh, level of interaction between them and their visitors. 
So, I mean, there's a wide gamut of things. And that seems to also support the theory that multiple races are involved. So there you have it, folks. You know, UFOs, extraterrestrial biological entities, and technology. Uh, you know, it's, it's time for disclosure. And I think we're going to be seeing, hopefully, that, you know, if Congress gets its way, we're going to be seeing more of that, you know, in the coming years. And, you know, potentially having, you know, changes for, you know, uh, for our world and maybe hopefully better ways. Who knows? But that's it. We're out of time. I want to thank you for joining me this evening. I'm your host, Damon Dare, and you've been listening to The Straight Dope.